and I have sat and cried with business owners, both good tears, you know, right. tears of, you know, I can't believe I'm doing this. My family's wonderful. And, and often some very painful tears around, you know, I have this, um, you know, challenge with my brother or my sibling, and I don't know how to resolve it. The From the Heart podcast is presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. The three most challenging transitions owners face, scale, sale, and succession, often result in a costly and confusing journey, but it doesn't have to be that way. Orange Kiwi helps their clients succeed where others fail by navigating the challenges others can't. Find out how Orange Kiwi helps you avoid the costly and confusing journey to realize the results you're looking for with less stress and more satisfaction. Visit their website, orangekiwiLLC.com. Choose Contact Us. Enter the promo code HLG2020 for a complimentary 30-minute consultation. Hi, I'm Dan Vanderbilt, Executive Director of the Smith Family Business Initiative at Cornell University. And you're listening to From the Heart, sponsored by Orange Kiwi Consultant. So as you heard this morning, my guest is my good friend, Dan Vanderbilt. Dan and I met uh, just very quickly. I started my role at Cal State Fullerton in 2011. Uh, each year we attend a, uh, I almost said a virtual conference because that's what we did this year. Each year we attend an actual in-person <laughs> conference with family business directors from around North America. And I met Dan, I believe in 2011 at that first one when you were at Vermont. So talk about that that's a little correct. bit. So your, your background in family business, you've been doing this, I guess, for about 20 years, if my math is right, because I've been doing it for 10. And I think you were about 10 years in when I started. But you were at the University of Vermont first. Talk about how you got into this. I know your background a little bit. Talk about how you first got into the whole family business education world. Sure. So this, of course, was never my career objective. I think uh, when you I just was told me you were going to be a trucker, right? We just got done talking about how you were going to be a trucker. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first career goal as a young kid. I, I, I was always fascinated by the open road and driving uh, and, and just being out there with, with sort of that freedom to go wherever you wanted to go. Um, but uh, learned early on that that might not have been the best career choice. And um, when I went to the University of Vermont, I was very interested in the environment and the outdoors um, and studied uh, recreation management and natural resources and had great plans of being a, a park ranger, sitting on top of a mountain somewhere um, and, you know, just contemplating the universe. And it didn't take me long to realize that that was really more of a lifestyle than a career path, at least for me personally. Um, I ended up back at the University of Vermont after graduating there um, in their continuing ed um, department. And, and at that point, this was the year 2000, continuing ed was really about the non-traditional learner. These were adults. These were uh, people who might have had trouble accessing university first time around. Uh, these were also businesses. And I think it was in that capacity that I built up a pretty strong network of business relationships in my young career at the time. Um, and a few things happened at the university at the time, uh, but what was most significant was a partnership between the, the business school at UVM uh, and the continuing ed department. Uh, we had a new dean come in, Rocky Lee DeWitt, uh, who, who really became a mentor to me and, and still remains a very close friend. Um, and uh, it was in that capacity that um, I discovered they had a family business program at the time, family business as a university study was sort of in its early stages 20 years ago. Um, I knew nothing about family business. 
but um, our small program, the director left, and I had a strong relationship with um, the dean, Rocky. And uh, she, she essentially said to me, here, Dan, you know a lot of business people. This might be something for you to do. And, and kind of pushed a folder across the table to me and said, here, we've got a few programs already scheduled. Just get it through to the end of the year. Um, and that really sparked a, an interest and kind of launched me on this journey. Um, one of the things that, that I was instantly drawn to about family business was the ability really to talk to the key people in the business, typically the, you know, the owners, be they, um, you know, the father, the mother, or whomever. Um, and then also this notion that, you know, there were other family members in the business in some capacity. So it, it appealed to my, um, my, my, relationship nature. Um, I, I did not have a formal business training. I still really to this day do not have a very strong formal business training. But um, what I learned in family business is it didn't really have to do with that. What what is required is the ability to listen, to learn, uh, and hopefully to understand and, and help, um, you know, that family understand, uh, you know, what challenges lay ahead for them outside of the business realm. And, um, uh, what I discovered about family business is you could get connected to some real thought leaders in this space very quickly. Um, and many of those people I'm still very well connected with and they're, um, you know, very influential in, in what we call sort of the family business space. So over the course of time at the University of Vermont, um, you know, really kind of educated myself on what family business was and what some of the issues were uh, that were particular to family business. Um, and I, I would say over the course of the next 10 years, helped to build that program into one that had some, uh, I would say, some international scope and significance. Uh, we were joined by a faculty member in 2012, uh, Dita Sharma, who uh, was a leading scholar in the space, and she really then helped to elevate the program even more and, and enhance my understanding. Um, and it was uh, in 2014 uh, that I became aware of uh, a new program at Cornell University, the Smith Family Business Initiative. Um, and that was when I you know, made the decision to um, head to Cornell uh, and be the founding director of what is now the Smith Family Business Initiative. And, and remarkably, that was six years ago. So um, it has been almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's not a, a, a linear career path. And I think uh, you know there are always opportunities unfolding uh, in this space, uh, but I have just truly enjoyed it for, you know, the very reason it, it's given me the opportunity to talk with, you know, just incredible business people, as you right. know, Ed. I mean, these are people that are head up global brands that we all know, use, and consume, but, but also, you know, businesses we've never heard of uh, that can be very small and local, but also do very incredible things. Right. And um, you know, what still strikes me to this day is, is the ability to sit together with people, you know, albeit virtually over the last few months, uh, but to be in a room with somebody, you know, somebody who you look at as smart, intelligent, and, uh, you know, inspirational, and all of a sudden they start revealing to you, you know, sometimes very intimate, you know, things about themselves personally, possibly about family issues that they are dealing with or struggling with. Um, and, and I think, you know, what we do, Ed, um, is, you know, we're there to listen, we're there to understand. Uh, and sometimes, you know, quite frankly, for many of these business owners, or at least business leaders, they don't know where else to go. They might not even be able to go to their spouse immediately with this. They might not be able to go to their family immediately. 
directly with it. So, you know, whether it's a phone call or an email that we get, sometimes they reveal, you know, some very challenging situations that go far beyond um, anything that they could learn or solve in a business classroom. You know, sure. these are deep-seated family issues that sometimes go back generations. Uh, so it's a it's a particular set of skills I think that many of us that work with family businesses have, um, and and I think we do a good job of sometimes pulling you know little bits of data and info from everything we've learned and try to you know uh, synthesize that and, and deliver it in a way back to the business owner or leader uh, in a way that helps them you know realize okay this person understands what I'm going through. Yeah, you mentioned early on that uh, as you were starting to answer about the relationship aspect of it, and obviously that's a big part of what I love about it as well. Was there a point when you were still in your in your first gig at Vermont before you came to Cornell? And, you know, I can't believe that was six years ago. I remember when you were discussing it, and it was like yesterday. Was there a point where maybe it, without obviously divulging any kind of confidentiality with who the client was or what have you or what the issue was, but where a light bulb went off and it clicked in you that's like, hey, this might be more than just my next gig. This actually might be what I do with the rest of my life. Because you've, you're looked at, just for those that don't know Dan, many of you who are listening today have heard Dan speak in different forums around the country, as well as ours at Cal State Fullerton. And, uh, and not to like, you know, get, blow your head up too big there, buddy, but you def you're definitely looked at as one of the experts. When I look at the Alliance of Family Business Directors and I look at family business in general, you've got a lot of experience that you share but I know that it wasn't always that way, like anybody in any job. Was there a point early on or at some point that you can recall where you kind of went from, wow, I kind of get this and I kind of dig it? Yeah. I, I mean, first, I'm always uncomfortable being called an expert. Um, wow. And I don't, I, I'm not trying to be humble. You know a uh, lot. But I think you're my... definitely a great, uh, you're a great resource <laughs> for all of us. Well, I, I think what, where I'm challenged is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who understands family business, who has seen much of it and talked with many people. So I'm able to draw upon that experience. Um, I have never run a business myself. I have never had to, you know, sign paychecks for employees. And I think that's a true test uh, for anyone, you know, until you've, you know, had to sort of sign those paychecks or, you know, tell an employee, I don't have a paycheck for you this week. Right. I think that's a very different breed of expertise, which um, I just don't, fully have. So, so I'm always a little hesitant mm -hmm. to say, you know, tell business owners, you know, how they should do something or, or offer, you know, sound advice. However, to, to your point, Ed, um, yeah, you know, I think it, it sort of unfolded over the course of time where, you know, I, I felt like I had a, um, a, a strong ability, again, to sort of to listen and hear and empathize with, you know, what was happening. Um, and, you know, I can remember one situation um, where it was a, a business owner here, a very well-respected business owner who had somewhat of a, a, a public uh, profile. Uh, and I remember sitting with and, and walked into uh, the office um, that he shared. He closed his door um, and he began whispering to me and he whispered to, and, and, I, and I, you know, kind of leaning in to, to listen to him. And, you know, I kind of said, you know, well, why, why are we whispering? It's just because I don't want my brother to hear who's in the next office what we're talking about. Um, and I think that's when I sort of realized that there's something different about, you know, family business. 
um, when it comes to, you know, it, it being a bit of a career that, you know, this, again, it, it kind of goes to what's in our, um, our uh, tool chest, you know, that yeah. we have to use a lot of different tools at times. Um, I, I've often commented, you know, I've sat in conferences, whether it's conferences we've run here at Cornell or other ones I've attended. And, and one thing I think is very unique about um, family business in, in a business conference context is it's not uncommon for like these huge levels of emotion to come out on stage. Um, and so, and that just really struck me. I, I tend to be a very emotional person. Um, and, and when people can sort of divulge that vulnerability um, and in that moment be turning to you for mm -hmm. some level of advice or understanding, or sometimes just, you know, to have somebody to talk to, again, kind of being that, you know, confidential um, friend. Um, and that, that just really appealed to me. And I think, you know, that's something that continues to this day, um, you know, where you get that phone call or you read that email and, and sometimes you're, you're just really, you have to take a step back and say, can I, can I really help this person? But also realizing that they've turned to you for a reason. So if I have an expertise, I think it's understanding how to uh, be there when needed and at the same time be able to direct this person to whatever resources are within my ecosystem that I feel are going to be helpful. Hello, my name is John Royce Lynch, founder and CEO of PCMA Private Client. As a former professional surfer and native of Southern California, I have always enjoyed Wahoo's fish tacos. When the pandemic hit, the response by Wahoo's was unparalleled, creating the California Love Drop by supporting frontline workers and those in need. On behalf of the PCMA private client community and our amazing team, it is an honor to be able to support this noble effort. To lend a hand and to learn more, please visit californialovedrop.org. In, in the class that I teach, uh, you know, one, of, one of the best outcomes of that is, is reading some of their the student reflections. Um, and when they talk about, you know, having called the first family meeting in their family in four generations, or when, uh, you know, this past semester I had a student for his final paper uh, write a letter to his family. Um, and it's actually up on my blog. Um, and it just it just really struck me as, you know, these are the things that that we do in our profession that, you know, hopefully have lasting impact um, either at an individual or, you know, hopefully um, at a family level as well. And, um, you know, what, what I often share in my class and, and also when I talk um, is for for a business leader, the, the decisions you make for your business. Um, could last a year. They could last five years. They might last ten years. You know, if you're if you're really good. Um, but the decisions you make um, in your family will last for generations. Sure. So to to weigh those accordingly, because um, you know, once we start talking a little bit more about family business, you know, in the three circle model, you know, there's uh, there's a balance needed, uh, and sometimes you know, there's there's too much focus on the business versus you know, uh, focus on the family, and, and while those two need to be in balance. You know, I do think one um, has uh, um, needs a little more attention. Sure. Have you seen much difference? And I know one of the things that I've noticed with family businesses is they think, you know, I won't say they think longer term than maybe a traditional non-family, but in, in a lot of ways they do. They're thinking about generations and legacy, maybe more than the CEO of a Fortune 500 company might. But 
in the 20 years you've done this, have you seen any significant difference? Like what's important to a family business in 2000 might not be now or, or wasn't then, but is now other than maybe the technology. And certainly we're in this COVID environment. We'll talk about that in a little while. Anything jump out at you at all that might be a significant dif difference or, or not? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's sort of the classic answer of, you know, uh, things are different and things are the same. I, yeah. I think families, uh, what, what we see with, with our family businesses, especially those that, that go back a few generations, um, and this has come into focus during COVID over the last year or so, is, you know, they have faced challenges every generation. And, and often multiple challenges. And, uh, you know, I, I share a story of a, a family business here in upstate New York and uh, was talking with, with the, um, the CEO, he's the third generation. And, you know, typically we ask him to share their family history. And, and I remember him just sort of brushing over, you know, we, well, we started back in, you know, 1918 and, and, you know, it was right during the middle of World War One. Um, and then, uh, and then the Great Depression hit, and we got through that. And, and just sort of, you know, how how they often sort of talk almost nonchalantly about these significant points in history, as though they're just, just you know, additional sort of, you know, dots on reading bullet on, points on a sheet yeah, of paper on yeah. the line. Yeah. yeah. And and so and 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 hopefully, you know, ten years from now, maybe they'll say, yeah, and we got through COVID, right. um, and and some good things came of it. Um, you know, and that's not to say that. Uh, you know, family business is some sort of magic bullet and, um, you know, they have, you know, the recipe to make it through these um, um, disasters because there's a lot of carnage and there's a lot of businesses that won't come back from this. But uh, business does continue in one form or another. And, and each of these opportunities, you know, creates new businesses or creates new ways of doing businesses. So, you know, to, to your question, Ed, I, I think, you know, much has remained the same in terms of doing business, even though we might do business differently, sure. but it, it still comes down to, you know, what are you doing to add value to those that, you know, you would call your customers. Uh, and, and while that might change from generation to generation, um, I think families still need to be able to respond to that. Um, you know, family itself becomes more complex and what it, what it means to be family. Um, and so that certainly, um, you know, is, is continually added to the mix. But, um, you know, I think that's been true through the ages as well. I mean, what we see as normal now might not have been the norm in 2000 and certainly wasn't the norm in 1950. I think we're, we're products of, you know, the time that we're in. What are you hearing as you're tuned in to family businesses, not just in upstate New York, where Cornell is or in Vermont, where you live? Uh, you work a lot with international family businesses as well. You work, as you mentioned, with a lot of students. What are you, I'm, I'm going to dive into the COVID conversation for a moment here. What are you hearing from people that they're learning? And I'm also going to ask the second part of the question from you. So what are they and what are you learning from this last 10 month crisis? The uh, crisis is even not even a strong enough word, but the pandemic, the, the, the environment that we live in now that, that you're hearing that they will take with them. And then same thing to you. What are you learning about you or your capabilities or anything at all from this that you hope to adapt into your daily life? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that I've realized over my time here, um, being exposed to um, individuals as well as businesses from all over the world 
and, and despite recent events, uh, perhaps to the contrary, um, you know, we live in a very stable um, uh, place here in the United States. Uh, and, and I realize there's great turmoil right now, but we have relative stability uh, with our systems. And, and certainly we, we can complain, um, and there's um, certainly ways in which um, our system of government can be better. And, and I think that's you know, what we were founded on was the ability to always strive to be better. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, growing pains along the way. And, and you know, this country almost 250 years in is still going through growing pains. That being said, um, you know, when talking with business owners and leaders from other parts of the world where uh, governments are not as stable, where uh, crime uh, and corruption is much more the standard um, rather than uh, the exception, uh, you know, uh, I'll give one story from a, um, a speaker we had in our class this past semester. Uh, her family business is from Venezuela um, and was founded over 100 years ago. It's a remarkable family business that is now uh, in its fourth generation, entering its fifth generation. And as she shared her story, you know, the, the tales that she shared of what her family has gone through to, to the point that the government um, confiscated their, it's a farming business, confiscated their land and, and essentially their entire business. And this is not a, a singular story that I hear, um, you know, tales of kidnapping, tales of, uh, you know, confiscation by the government or by, you know, rival tribes, if you will. Um, it's not uncommon in certain parts of the world. Um, I, I had one student in my first year here at Cornell um, and his family's business was uh, from a country in the Middle East. And as he shared his story, he talked about, um, you know, my, my father has started several businesses. And when I queried why he had started several businesses, um, you know, the answer basically came back to, well, you know, uh, war and, um, and various sort of acts of aggression have, you know, essentially blown up various buildings and taken apart various yeah. businesses. Uh, and that was just, um, you know, sadly, um, sort of part of doing business in, in certain parts of the world. What's well, a matter of fact um, to him you know, there's something a, we don't even think about, right? Yeah. So, and, and there's a whole sort of subset of um, uh, study in this uh, as it re pertains to family business called Extremophiles, led by uh, Yvonne Landsberg uh, and Devin Siantis. Uh, it's a fascinating area because they've, they've sort of applied this notion of extremophiles, which are organisms that tend to live in areas that don't have light, don't have nutrients, um, but somehow they, they survive. And, and applying that in a family business context, it looks at, you know, how these families survive during political turmoil, financial strife, or even, you know, environmental um, changes. Uh, and, and there's some, some interesting research to um, really underscore that families are often best positioned to weather these types of storms because of the uh, essentially the non-business resources that they mm -hmm. bring to bear. The fact that they have strong social ties, the, the fact that they have um, uh, capital uh, that comes from, you know, sources other than financial capital that they're willing to, uh, you know, we talk about sort of you know, the blood and sweat equity, you know, sure. they put things into the business that, uh, you know, a typical non-family business might not. Um, so 
you know, that's a very long answer to say, you know, internationally, I think um, uh, in certain parts of the world, uh, you know, there is great instability. Uh, and, and in some places that is more the norm than the exception. Uh, and these families have found ways to persist uh, and survive. Uh, and so again, when a, when a disruption like COVID hits, which um, has been you know, much more global in nature than, than the typical crisis, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, they're, they're often you know, very ready to respond uh, and deploy resources yeah. as necessary. Now, what about you? What are you What are you taking from this? I know for those that don't know, Dan lives in Vermont, works at Cornell. It's about a five-hour drive, from what I understand. And I know you go back and forth, not you know, sometimes weekly, sometimes every couple of weeks, and so forth. In the normal time, I know you're working from home now. So, apart from your ability to, because you've always been able to telecommute, you've worked from home a lot when you're at Cornell and so forth. So, I'm guessing the telecommuting part of this is not that big of a deal for you, like it might be for some of the rest of us. Um, but what are you taking out of this that, that you're seeing or that you're personally experiencing, personally, professionally, anything that you just think, man, I hope I hang on to this 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I'm very fortunate. And, you know, and I try to be very aware of the fact that um, I still have my job. Um, and in, in some ways, it's, it's, great because I do get to work from home. I don't have to do that drive. So um, as many as 20 hours of my week has been given back to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's been a big plus. Um, and even though I've telecommuted before, you know, now we all have, or, mm -hmm. or many of us have home offices. So that has certainly changed. Um, and it's become, you know, much more the daily routine rather than, you know, setting up my computer on the kitchen table for a couple days a week. Right. Um, I, I think, um, and, and to that end, you know, just being home with family and having that time to, uh, think to, excuse me, get out and, you know, enjoy, you know, the surroundings that I have here. I mean, Vermont, um, has been a wonderful place to be during this time. And I, and I only mean that by we're a small state with a small population that's very rural. So, um, while I think it's relative to where we live, um, uh, you know, and COVID is still very much um, a reality here that we have to contemplate. Um, it's, uh, you know, I don't feel as restricted and locked in as I might be elsewhere. You or me living here in California or in I LA. Yeah. Yes. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think you're the and, furthest and away from me of any guest that I've had, by the way, geographically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got that going for you. So, yeah. So, so I think, you know, there's, I, I, you know, I, I try not to overlook the fact that I'm very fortunate in that regard. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, I still have a job to do and our job very much uh, depends on relationships um, and, and how important sort of that face-to-face -face, uh, element um, has been. Uh, so, you know, trying to stay in front of people um, uh, is, I think at times, on one hand can be a little bit easier. You know, I can, you know, have a, a Zoom chat like this with somebody and, Wisconsin or California, really anywhere in the world and, yeah. and get that set up in less than 24 hours. So I think that's a plus. Uh, but, you know, there is something lost when you, you're not able to sit and talk uh, and spend some some quality time together. Um, and, and also, I think, you know, in terms of the businesses we work with, and, and you've experienced this as well, is 
um, you know, how do we remain relevant and provide value when they're feeling pain or they're feeling uncertainty? Um, and so, you know, I commend you on the work you've done, Ed, because you, you've really, you know, built a wonderful community there, not only in, in California, but, you know, you've been instrumental in pulling together our, what we call our alliance community as well, um, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to be isolated uh, in these times. Um, and, and even though, uh, you know, virtual connection still might not be as great as a face-to-face -face connection, um, you know, there, there is a sense of community that we need to understand that we're not truly alone in this. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, um, I, I still enjoy what I do. Uh, and, and, you know, we all talk about, it'll be great when we can get back together and have a conference or have a class or, or whatever. Um, but I think also, um, you know, we're, I think we're still only at about the midpoint of, of, of what we are experiencing right now. So, you know, just really trying to adjust and, um, you know, COVID is no longer an excuse. COVID is the right. reality. Yeah, we can't say, well, we can't deliver that because of COVID. We can't, you know, we can't offer this class or we can't do that conference. Um, you know, we still have to um, do what we do um, and remain relevant. Uh, and I think that has, forced all of us to really, you know, think hard about um, what is our purpose and in, in our, in our respective businesses. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, you're right. I think that the, the ability for us to get in front of people now like this was there before, obviously, I, I think that we just didn't use it the way we are now because we didn't have to. Now I was looking at the stock for Zoom today, it's through the roof, you know, any of these telecommuting and you know, these, you know, Slack and Zoom and all these others where we're forced to work from our home. Certainly those are doing well. And I think for me personally, I think that we'll still, I mean, geographically, my family businesses I work with are for the most part, 30 miles away or less from where I sit right now. In mm -hmm. your case, it's not so much that way. So you may lean on this technology a little bit more going forward than maybe I might have to, but there's still gonna be times that I need to as well. And especially for keeping, you know, our alliances you talked about closer together. All right, off COVID, off of that. I want to learn more about you. Okay. I want to learn more about, um, you know, you and I have known each other for 10 years. We talk, we text regularly. We've got a lot of things in common and we'll talk about some of those here momentarily too, that are non family business related. Um, early on when you, you talked about relationships and I'm always going to go back to that. Cause like you, I'm a relationship guy. That's why it's been so important for me to, to have these calls and keep our alliance, you know, not that I'm keeping it together, but that, you know, I wanted to keep us communicating on a regular basis is, these relationships, because that's where I learn the most is from other people. Talk to me, if you will, about any early mentors or where did that start? Where did that just passion for relationships? And, and uh, when you look back at like, wow, why are people so critical to me? Or is there a, a person or people in your life that really inspired you? And, and uh, you look at them and go, wow, you know, what? I, I get why I'm this way, because so my mom or my dad or a family member or teacher or what have you was that way. Who, who inspired you and mentored you early on? Yeah, I can think of really probably three people that um, jumped to the top of that list very quickly. Um, one uh, was a gentleman named Al Harding. Uh, he was the um, he was a member of our church, and our church had something called um, uh, Christian Service Brigade. Uh, and if, if you're not familiar with Christian Service Brigade, it's it's sort of the church counterpart to Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, it's it's everything Boy Scouts is, but it's it's more. Uh, under the auspices of the church. 
Uh, and Al was the director of that, of our squad. Um, and he was just such a, a kind, gentle man who I also saw as very smart uh, and understanding of, you know, what was going through, you know, boys' minds when they're, you know, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, um, never judged, um, and was just always, you know, a, a, a great listener and a compassionate person who, um, you know, truly enjoyed spending time with um, that group. So that was sort of one person I think, you know, early on, uh, and, and he still pops into my mind from time to time. Uh, the second person was my first boss. Uh, at the age of 15, uh, I uh, got my first job washing dishes uh, at a restaurant. Uh, at the time, I lived in New Jersey. It was a fancy restaurant by New Jersey standards. We were um, probably about 45 minutes outside of New York City, and this was actually a restaurant that people would come to uh, from the city because it had a had a pretty strong reputation. So it was very high quality, uh, and that has always stuck with me. You know that that um, I, I do think quality matters. Uh, and Charlie Nuzzo was the owner of that restaurant. It was called St. Charlie's. Um, and what I loved about Charlie was that he was uh, kind, but also stern. Um, and because he ran a restaurant that had such high quality standards, um, you know, you had to train your staff to understand what that meant. You know, that, you know, people were paying a lot of money for uh, their meals and they wanted a certain level of service. So Charlie really, um, implored on me the need for quality service, um, that he was, you know, uh, a kind gentleman as well. Um, but I, I remember one time I, with Charlie, um, I messed up uh, on something. I, I honestly can't remember uh, what it was. Uh, and Charlie yelled at me, you know, yelled at me in the kitchen. Uh, and that was, you know, a little more common in the workplace back then, especially in a, in a restaurant that's moving Best fast. Case, you know, yeah. I didn't think anything I didn't think anything about the yelling that didn't bother me at all. That might be a little bit out of place in today's culture. Um, I was just more hurt that um, he had to yell at me, that I had done something wrong in his eyes. But what, what always stuck with me about Charlie is later that night after the shift was over and people had left and we're all sort of winding down from a busy night, you know, he put his arms around me and he said, you know, I love you, right, Dan? And, mm. you know, it's just sort of that reassurance that, you know, mistakes happen, learn from them. Um, and, you know, and what happens is, you know, it's not, it's not fatal. Yeah. Uh, and then the third one would be Rocky Lee DeWitt. Um, and she uh, is still a faculty at uh, the University of Vermont. We still remain in close contact. Um, and she was sort of my mentor in family business. Uh, and it was with Rocky that I began teaching in family business. And, you know, again, going back to the fact that, you know, I don't view myself as an expert. I didn't feel like I knew that much about business. Um, and, you know, 15 years ago to be able to co-teach a course in family business with the dean of the business school, um, I mean, that was just mind boggling for me. But I, I, I learned so much from her, not only how to teach, but also, you know, to, um, uh, to understand, you know, what's going through the students' minds, uh, to be prepared, and also to have a little fun while doing it. Um, and, and Rocky's been, you know, really a, a constant presence in my life and journey um, up till the present day. Um, so those are, you know, three people I think, you know, that, you know, I continue to look back on and, and try to emulate some of the lessons they taught me around, um, you know, compassion, about excellence, uh, and about, you know, continually learning and improving. Now, as a, as a person who works with these family-owned companies and you teach as well, 
I'm sure students come to you and say, hey, maybe they don't say the words, Dan, will you mentor me? But when you choose to mentor someone, whether they come to you or you see something in someone, is there something you look for or something that if they do that, that you got it? Like for me, someone will come and sit in my desk and say, hey, Mr. Hart, will you be a, a reference for me? It's like, well, what's your last name? You know, it's like, I've known you for 15 minutes. I, I can't really do that yet because I don't know you yet. Is there something you look for? Because I know students come to you and I know others like myself and others have come to you as well for, for mentorship, whether we label it that or not. Something you look for in people before you really invest in them, I guess, is the way I'm asking this. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to uh, quantify it, but I, I think there's a certain level of receptiveness to what you're saying you know, and, and the fact that they um take action uh, at some level uh based upon you know what you've shared or what you've suggested um and and because yes they're you know I, I meet with a lot of students um and and you can tell for some it's a little more transactional mm -hmm. you know they they want to meet with you because then they can uh you know maybe tell the admissions team I'm really interested in family business and I'll be a great student at Cornell and that's fine that, you know that that's perfectly fine um, but, you know, there's a number of those students I've, you know, probably never heard from again. Um, it's, I think the students who um, are equally interested in building a relationship as you are uh, and show a general level of gratitude, be that through um, thank you letters, be that through even, you know, sometimes just a, an email um, or, you know, often reporting back, hey, you know, I met with mom and dad based on what you said and we had this conversation and, and this is what happened. So. You know, it's if if you're going to enter into that, you want to feel like you know you are having an impact, and that what you say matters, um, and that you know that there is some level of outcome based on that. So, um, you know, it's I can't say I I go into it and and I'll say no to anybody. I think I always say yes if somebody wants to meet with me. Um, but I think uh, you know the ones who really are getting value of it out of it um, likely continue it um, based on you know their own choice rather than the transactional nature of you know just checking a box and talking to somebody and then moving on to the next thing yeah what would you say are some of the biggest challenges you've had in your career is there anything that jumps out at you that was just uh, maybe one of those moments where you thought ah, probably should have done this differently or maybe just a big challenge that came across in your career that you learned the most from and were there people there and if so maybe who helped you through some of those i would say um i think it's a, a continuous um drive to establish credibility um, especially in a university setting, um, as you know, you know, there's a lot of smart people sure. out there. Um, and, um, uh, you know, you, you're dealing with people who have, you know, terminal degrees in, in mm -hmm. fields I know nothing about. Um, so it's hard to argue with them on, in certain mm -hmm. merits. And, and I think what the, the big lesson I learned when I came to Cornell um, is they hired me to be the director of the family business initiative. And that's where I can be an expert. You know, I don't have a PhD in family business, but I've put in my time. Right. Um, and, and this lesson was driven home when I first started at Cornell. 
uh, and I met with the dean of the business school at the time, um, Sumitra uh, Dutta, um, still a faculty member at Cornell and somebody I respect greatly. Um, and in my first meeting with him, of course, you know, I'm at Cornell meeting mm. with the dean of the business school. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Ivy you know, and I, I remember I, yeah, sure. exactly. Um, and I remember asking him, um, so, you know, Dean Dutta, what would you like to um, see uh, out of, you know, how would you like what would you like to see the Smith Family Business Initiative be? And he looked at me, you know, without hesitation. And he said, well, Dan, that's why we hired you. That's your job. Yeah, you tell <laughs> to me, tell, right? Yeah. Nice. To, to tell us what it could be. Uh, and that was, a, that was a big moment for mm -hmm. me to realize, like, okay, you know, I was hired for that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I can be an expert in that more mm -hmm. than, you know, a faculty member can be who is, you know, wonderful in marketing or finance or whatever. Um, so, you know, I think, and that's always going to be the reality in a university setting, you know, that, you know, much of the power is, is certainly held by the faculty members, you know, that's the, that they carry the brand in terms of, you know, um, you know, that's who does the research and that's who, you know, kind of creates the, the overall um, uh, intellectual capital for um, the organization. But yet at the same time, you know, family business holds a place within that structure. Uh, and I have to be sort of the, you know, the torchbearer for family business and understand you know, when I need to talk and, and, and when I need to defer. Okay. So six years into this job now, I'm going to ask you that same question that you asked them to you, what does success look like for your program? Yeah. Um, so, you know, family business is an interesting landscape in the educational um, space, you know, so we, we always throw out the numbers, you know, anywhere from 70 to 90% of all businesses are family owned. When you go international, that number climbs even higher. Um, you know, so family businesses um, certainly dominate the economic landscape, but yet um, at the university, um, they play a very small role. And, and, and it's interesting why that is, you know, if we compare it to say entrepreneurship, where, um, you know, virtually any Decent business school has a very robust entrepreneurship program. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis and money that goes into it. And, um, but yet, uh, um, you know, family business pales in comparison to entrepreneurship. And, and part of it is, you know, entrepreneurship is sexy. Everybody wants to build a company, grow it, mm -hmm. sell it, make millions. And, and for the university's sake, hopefully give some of that money back to the university at some point. But um, family business is sort of this... Um, this thing that a lot of people don't like to talk about. If you're a student, you don't want to feel like, you know, mom and dad sent you to the university to get a degree and then you're going back to a job that you essentially already have, you know, that kind of undermines your own credibility. Yeah. Um, and, you know, family business as a field of study, um, the, you know, the body of literature is still catching up to other areas. And, and I often, you know, say that, you know, family business is not a discipline like, finance or operations uh, or psychology, you know, family business is an interest area that cuts across many of those disciplines. And, and in a university hierarchy, it's very hard to categorize that right. uh, because, you know, university hire faculty based on their discipline knowledge. Um, and uh, if the body of literature isn't there for family business, um, then it's hard to be an expert in that field. Um, you know, you're an expert in finance or psychology or labor or whatever, 
um, there's very few you know, genuine experts in family business. So to, to your question around what you know, do I hope um, the Smith Family Business Initiative is and, and will continue to become, um, you know, we are building a program that um, is equally inward focused, meaning uh, student um, centric, as well as outward focused kind of outreach and, and working with family businesses. Many of the programs out there are much more focused on the outreach. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. um, fine. Um, yeah, yours is, is very, you built I mean, a, a We have a class, but it's um, more about the outward focus, yeah. Right. So you have a phenomenal community, and that means, um, you know, great things to the people that are members of those communities. But there's a few things at play there. One is you have, you know, the population, um, sure. you know, necessary to, to you know, create a, uh, um, a cluster of, of businesses. And, and that's what we often see that, you know, these family business centers, you know, really draw upon a a 50 or 75 mile radius. So it's, it's important to have the right mix of businesses in that, in that area. Um, and two, their support uh, from the school for whatever reason. And, and in your case, you know, you are probably uh, at, at some level financially successful. Uh, and so you're allowed to continue. But what we've seen, Ed, firsthand over the last year is that many of these programs, which we thought were successful, were immediately cut loose by their schools for right. several reasons. One, they weren't as financially successful as maybe we thought they were. Two, mm -hmm. um, they weren't uh, really contributing to the overall mission of the school, which is to educate students and create new knowledge. So if they're not engaged in education and they're not doing research, many of the deans who had the decision kind of looked at you know these programs and said, you know, why are we running a program that you know is is for a bunch of business owners who have no connection to the university. Yeah. So for you know people who are in that difficult position of having to make either a headcount decision or a financial decision, uh, we saw many of our colleagues, sadly, um, their programs were, were instantly um, shuttered and, sure. and probably won't come back. Right. So What's important, I think, in that equation for us anyway at Cornell is that uh, we continue to demonstrate an ability um, to show why this is a valuable resource for Cornell. And we show that by, um, you know, the number of students that come in that are from a family business, uh, an increasing number of students that are taking our courses and engaging in our program, um, and also the alumni who at the same time um, are connecting with the program. So sure. what that does is when I'm sitting down with the dean or whoever, you know, the important decision makers are, you know, and they're, they're, you know, kind of look at me and say, you know, why do we need family business? Here's why. Um, and here are the students, here are the alumni, here is, you know, the, the financial justifications for what we do. So that was a lesson that I really brought with me from Vermont after running the program there was that um, you know, we needed to be relevant in the eyes of the university. Um, the, the outward facing stuff, the, the conferences and programs, those will come um, and, and ultimately those play an important role financially for us in terms of generating revenue and, and kind of maintaining the program. Um, but the, the most rewarding stuff we do by far is the work that we do with students as yeah. well as uh, when we can create new research. Yeah, I think one of the biggest values that we bring, not just at Fullerton, but some of the other centers as well, and you, you mentioned that a lot of our colleagues are, or centers out there aren't around any longer, is we really not only 
the yeah, yeah we're financially doing pretty well we've got an endowment we've got you know money coming in to support and, and maintain the operational budget for the center and we also bring funds to the other portions of the university as well but the intellectual capital that we bring the family business leaders that come in and, and speak in classes or sit on advisory boards with the dean or the president and are really actively involved in the university community whether they're cal state fullerton alums or not in fact most aren't from our center um, I think that's the value that we that we try to bring as well. So it's just that it's that big picture. It's not just, uh, you know, hey, is, am I meeting my bottom line? Yeah, if you're not, then you better be doing some of these other things. A couple more questions for you. I, I do want to talk about a couple of things that we have in common outside of family business. One in particular that we both are very passionate about. And you know where I'm going in a second, but really kind of the last talk to your experience of the family businesses you've talked you've worked probably more with multi-generational family businesses than I have because of where you are geographically and some of the international like Venezuela and others that you talked about. Do you see a common thread of what makes these family businesses successful? I know there's no pixie dust that we could sprinkle or we would all do it, but is there some thread or some common denominator that you've seen in the family businesses that are three or four or five generations old that are, that are just killing it? So this, Likely will sound as a cliche, mm -hmm. um, but I think one factor is just love, mm -hmm. that they love each other and they love their family. Um, and that comes in many forms. <laughs> you know, some, some families, you know, like going back to the Venezuelan family, um, you know, she talked about the fact that they fight, you know, and they, they get at it, you know, and, um, uh, and that's for them a good thing. You know that you know they do, they it's their way of discussing and um, uh, you know kind of figuring out what matters to them um, because it's you know in the class that I teach and in in, in the work that we do uh, you know there are a lot of prescriptive models out there you know we talk about governance and communication um, and innovation as all of these sort of hallmarks of successful family businesses and those and that's those are true. Um, but I think much of that really begins with um, a level of love and um, a willingness to be with each other and want to continue what they have. Um, and, you know, some families do love each other greatly, but then they, you know, neglect some of the other tough decisions around the business. Like, you know, maybe we just shouldn't be doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. And which, which kind of gets back to my point of, um, you know, making those decisions that, you know, understand that, you know, these are a business decision, which are necessary. And, um, you know, we want the business to continue now, but is it going to come at the cost of, you know, the family generations from now? My own family, um, you know, again, where I don't have a business, um, you know, I've seen, we've, we've had some tough relationships. My relationship with my father was not good. My relationship with my brother right now is not good. Um, and it, it, it makes me sad because, you know, my kids don't know his kids and that will probably continue for generations. So now, now there's a rift, um, in my family, uh, that, you know, uh, I need to sort of, you know, figure out what to do with that. And, and that's just a family, you know, sure. there's not Lay millions of dollars. On top of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. With, 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 you know, non-family employees and, and community ties, uh, and that can get, you know, real dicey real fast. Um, because, you know, I've seen families that have been very successful who don't have governance. They're like, you know what, we're, we're good as a family. You know, we've tried to bring in, you know, a board, we've tried to bring in, um, 
uh, advisors and they don't work for us. Mm -hmm. But that particular family, um, they have a level of love um, that that's really hard to quantify. Um, uh, there is a, a research paper out there, and I'd have to check um, that actually tried quantifying this very fact that um, you know there are factors that you know determine how much a family actually loves or at least likes each other and how that relates to business success. Um, and uh, you know, because I've, I've just seen you know a family here in Vermont that I know, um, I don't think they have that love. And, and, and I see that play out um, in, in a lot of conflicts uh, that happen um, that shouldn't be conflicts, but I think they play out just because there's, there's divisions in the family that have never been healed. Um, so, you know, I think that's, you know, that's a, a kind of a cliche answer. If we want to get into sort of the more mechanical answer, um, you know, that sort of initial kind of love leads itself to communication, mm -hmm. open and honest communication, um, which leads itself into, you know, what do we need to do to get better and be successful? And that's often where, you know, we see, um, you know, structures like governance come into play as the business grows and evolves. Um, and then governance can lead to innovation. Like maybe we're in the wrong business. Maybe we need to do something different. And, and we're seeing this, play out right now in real time with with covid as you know certain areas of business take restaurants and hospitality and travel have you know dried up completely yeah. um you know what are what are those businesses doing to survive uh either for the short term or you know change themselves you know structurally for the long term well and to go back to your cliche and i i'm a very touchy-feely guy as you know that love oftentimes will lead to humility and humility. It, one of the first things I see in these businesses is, yeah, they have that love and that passion for each other, but they also understand that they don't know everything. And so they reach out. And one of the reasons why we do mm -hmm. what, you, what you and I do and our colleagues do what we do is because we recognize that these family businesses need resources beyond what they might have within the walls of their home or the walls of their business. And um, this isn't necessarily a plug for either of our programs, but it really is a plug to family businesses who might be paying attention to this podcast today that there are resources out there for you like Cornell and Cal State Fullerton and many others across the world that, you know, Dan and I may not be the experts in family business, but we sure know a heck of a lot of people who are and can bring quite a bench strength to these families. Hey, did you know it's really easy to get started recording a podcast? Do you have topics of interest or ideas you'd like to share with the world? The From the Heart podcast presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting started simply because I love talking with people. And you know, we all love hearing great stories. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it really is easy. Second of all, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more podcast platforms. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one simple place. Download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, I got to go to this next topic as we wrap up here today. <laughs> Dan lives in Vermont, 
East Coast guy. We live 3,000 miles away from each other. If you've listened to any podcast on From the Heart, you know that I'm a huge LA Dodger fan. Um, Dan is as well. How does a Vermont boy become a Dodger fan? <laughs> so I New, grew up New Jersey in boy, New Jersey. Yeah, sorry. I grew up in New Jersey up until the time I was 20. And, you know, kind of in the, in the suburbs of New York City and, and growing up in New York City at that time, all of my friends were Yankee fans. All of my friends were New York Giants fans. Um, and I just was always a contrarian from a very young age. I, no. I didn't like going with, with the crowd. Um, and uh, I was born in 68, so I just gave away my age. But in uh, 1977, of course, um, Dodgers and Yankees were in the World Series. And so I'm a, at that point a nine-year-old boy. I've, I've just discovered baseball as this wonderful, beautiful sport. Uh, it has taken root in me. Didn't really have a favorite team yet. My dad was a Mets fan, um, and and I liked the Mets. And that's where my sort of my hometown team, and and they still are a very solid number two for me. Um, but the 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 reality behind me com- becoming a Dodger fan dealt with the fact that it was Dodgers Yankees. I couldn't root for the Yankees. Hmm. To make it even worse, my sister's boyfriend, who I loved and adored, uh, was a huge Yankee fan. And again, being the contrarian, I wasn't just going to be a Yankee fan because he was a Yankee fan. You know, I actually showed my, you know, kind of admiration for him by saying, I'm going to be a Dodger fan because mm-hmm. that's, you know, going to give us like this kind of fun thing to play with. Sure. Um, of course, 77 didn't go so well. Um, 78, we're right back at it with all the same teams in the playoffs and Yankees, Dodgers again. Uh, and that kind of solidified my, um, my love for the Dodgers. I, I just, I love their uniforms. I just always remember visually, they, they just always look stunning. Um, and my dad took me to a Dodger game at Shea stadium. Uh, my favorite player was Steve Garvey uh, and his first at bat, he hit a home run and, and I would practically cried. Nice. Um, and then in 80, in 81, of course it was the strike year. Uh, but um, there were just some great moments in 1981. And that was kind of our, uh, call it our revenge year where yeah. we finally beat the Yankees. And then the eighties, of course, you know, we're, we're a great decade for the Dodgers culminating in 88 with Oral Hershiser and, and the win over um, the Oakland A's. And so, you know, I was off to a good start in my yeah, Dodger uh, exactly. fan, fandom, you know, in my first 10 years, we won two world series and they were perennial playoff contenders. And as I learned more about them, I love the fact that they were once in Brooklyn uh, you know, so that's kind of my connection to my East Coast connection to them. Um, and I also love um, just learning about the, the, the organization and the mm-hmm. O'Malley family. Um, and that they, you know, to my young eyes at the time, they, they seem like one of those quality teams. As much as I have this sort of um, uh, disdain for the Yankees as, as mm-hmm. um, you know, in baseball, you're either a Yankee fan or, or, or you're not. Um, you know, the Yankees are a phenomenal organization, and I've always respected that about the team. And and, and that's what drew, drew me to the Dodgers. And for the most part, with a few bumps here and there, um, they have remained an extraordinary uh, franchise and organization, one that I've been proud to be a fan of. Um, it's been a rough 10 years. It has um, been. <laughs> and, you know, as you know, Ed, I've, I've um, tried to relinquish my fandom from time to time. And that's it's impossible because, you know, it's when you're a fan for most of your um, uh, uh, adult or even, you know, just your life, um, you know, that, that gets kind of baked into your D- 
DNA. And yeah. even though I have other teams that I enjoy watching, um, and, and they've broken my heart so much over the last 10 years. Um, it was weird to watch the World Series this year, just for as weird as 2020 was. Of course, this would be yeah. the year the Dodgers would win it. Um, and uh, I do remember when, you know, the, that, that strikeout to end the game. Um, and I just sat there in bewilderment <laughs> and looked at the TV. I didn't know what to do because <laughs> all of the last, however many seasons ended in, uh, heartbreak and pain um you know this was you know my wife looked at me and she says aren't you excited and I'm like I am <laughs> I, I, just, yeah. I, I don't know how, I don't know how to be excited because yeah. you know every time I'd been excited before you know the next series just kind of crashed us back down onto the rocks of, of despair so um it was a great year I think they have a great nucleus of young players like Walker Bueller uh certainly love him and, and the future he represents um and, and Mookie Betts you know just uh I, I think you know we, we both have sort of compared him in, in some fashion to the way Kirk Gibson came in in 1988 and just brought a new attitude that was really needed at the time um so you know I do hope and you know Mookie signed for a long-term deal so it looks like he'll be there for quite some time yeah. um as as frustrating as Oral Hershey or, or as uh Kershaw has been <laughs> Uh, it was it was deeply gratifying to see him get a ring as well as, um, you know, some of the other longtime Dodgers. I love Justin Turner. I do hope we re-sign him. I think he's the heart and soul of that team, regardless of what his stats might be from any year to year. Um, so it was great to sort of at least get that off the chest. And, and as yeah. baseball hopefully comes back to more of a, a sense of normalcy in 2021. Hopefully that will continue, but you know, now we've got, you know, Padres are looking good and they do, you know, all teams are, all teams are always trying to get better. So it's, it's, it's tough to project, you know, what's going to happen in any given year. Yeah. When you win, you get that target on your back in life, whether it's sports or business or, or what have you. And I think I cried more in 2017 when the Dodgers got to the world series because mm -hmm. it had been since 88 than I did when they won it a few months ago. Like you, it was just kind of, everything's kind of numb this past year. <laughs> and I thought I would cry. I was prepared. I turned to my dad and, and other family members in the room at the time when I was watching that final game a few months ago. And I said, just get ready. I'm going to ball like a baby when we win. And we won. And I didn't, you know, as I happy, sir, I, I ordered my championship <laughs> t-shirt that night and I wear it proudly. But um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers, to your point, are two teams that are, I guess that that means you've had some success when you're an easy team to love and an easy team to hate. You know, obviously mm -hmm. the Yankees have won it nearly 30 times. The Dodgers have won kind of to your point, And I'll finish with this before I ask my last question, the, uh, the Dodgers from 74 to 88. So I was, that was 10 to age 10 to age 24 for me. So I just gave my age away as well. We're in the world series five times in 14 years and won it twice. You know, there aren't a lot of teams mm -hmm. other than the Yankees that can mm -hmm. say that. And so, yeah, easy team to love, easy team yeah. to, to get frustrated with, for sure. Go ahead. I'll, you look I'll like you're getting ready things. to say one yeah. more thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, just, you know, it was fun kind of growing up in New Jersey and being a Dodger fan because at the time, um, you know, I always rationalized that, uh, you know, of course, we didn't have instant access to scores. And it was only through the sporting news that I could check in once a week and, and, and dig through the box score. So it was, it was easy to tune them out um, when they weren't doing good uh, mm -hmm. back then. You know, now you can't tune them out you know you can you can follow the games in real time and um 
and, and that's both kind of a blessing and a curse at times because it's uh, sometimes you don't want to look. Uh, but, you know, we've had a great run. I think that any team would want uh, whether you win the World Series or not. Um, the other thing I'll say about, you know, the 2020 season, you know, as it pertains to innovation in, in a business context, you know, you and I, I think, are both very traditional fans that don't like to see the game changed greatly. Um, there was something, you know, fun about the short season. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, and there was, you know, something really fun about the playoff format this year. I'm, I'm, I'm against letting more teams in because I think it dilutes the right. need for a longer season. You know, baseball is that, that rare long season where, you know, uh, you really need to prove yourself in the in the regular season in order to have a chance in the postseason. It also rewards um, mediocrity. It was, which, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but so I don't know what will come of it. Um, you know, I, I compare this year a little bit to the '81 season where you had the you know a strike strike shortened season, and remember we had the sort of the first half and second half winners right. um, in '81. And, uh, you know, the Dodgers had to, I think, first beat uh, the Astros and then mm-hmm. they had to beat the Expos uh, to get in to play the Yankees. Uh, so that was sort of, a, you know, at the time, that was sort of a similar innovative format, uh, which I think ultimately led to, you know, them allowing wild card teams in. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if structurally they're going to change the season. I, I've always felt like 162 games is a very long season, even as a diehard baseball fan. Right. Um, it, it starts when it's still snowing and it finishes <laughs> as we're going back into winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's as much as, you know, it's nice to see the whole product. Um, it's uh, it's a long season. So maybe, maybe yeah. that'll change. I don't know. This look into sports is a preview of what Dan and I are talking about too. Dan and a mutual friend of ours, Damian Beasley. Damian and I worked together in minor league baseball and he lives up in the uh, Oakland, San Francisco Bay area. He's a huge Giants fan. And I'm mentioning Damian because Dan and I are on a little group text. I won't say daily, but there a week doesn't go by where we don't have several text messages about, you know, our favorite wine or our favorite team or what's going on in the world or jokes or what have you. And, the three of us have joked quite a bit about maybe doing some sports talk. So be prepared uh, from the heart podcast uh, listeners that probably as baseball season gets closer, don't be surprised if you hear a few podcast episodes with the three of us talking <laughs> sports. And uh, it's kind of fun because, you know, Damien respects our Dodger team. We respect his giants, but we, we can't stand each other's teams, but uh, the passion for sports and love for, for the competition in sports is I think what we all have in common. So well, Dan, as you know, uh, because you've known me for 10 years and you've known, we talked probably before I started this podcast and you've been on board with me as a, as a friend and a, a mentor, quite honestly, even though I'm four years older than you, as we talked about a minute ago. Um, <laughs> I do look at you, I, I look up to you and your, your experience and your example, and I thank you for um, what you've taught and continue to teach me in my role working with family businesses. I lean on you a lot and I, I appreciate that. Um, the 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 name of the podcast from the heart i always end with the last question and so i'm just going to just say this one well first of all before i ask what's the best way for someone to reach you if they want to reach out i know some of our members out here have and i love that i love uh, i encourage any family business to reach out dan's perspective on family business uh while we share and we overlap a lot there's a lot he knows that i don't and uh, he, he's a great resource. So if you want to reach out to Dan, Dan, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, I, honestly, I would just Google Cornell 
family business. And I think you'll find um, our page pretty quickly. Um, I'm on LinkedIn um, as well. Uh, so Daniel Vanfleet uh, uh, at LinkedIn. Um, but uh, just Google Cornell Family Business or Smith Family Business Initiative, and uh, you'll probably find our page really quick. I could I could tell you the web address, but it's one of those long, you know, yeah, cornell.edu slash 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 right. type things. And it does work. And also for anybody that may be listening today that is in an area that may not know if you have a family business center near you, I would suggest you still Google the Cornell Family Business Initiative, as Dan just alluded to. On his website, he has a list of all the family business centers around North America. So I often will get a call from a family business in, in the middle of Podunk, USA, and just say, hey, go to Cornell's site. He has a list of all of the different family business programs. Find the one that's closest to you. And if you are a family business and you are struggling, or you want to make sure you don't struggle, you want to just, things are going well, you want to keep it that way. I always tell people that there are two types of people who join a health club, those that are wanting to stay healthy and those that want to get healthy. And I, I, I recommend to family businesses that you latch onto a university-based program for the same reason. Uh, so you'll find that resource yeah. there as well. So appreciate you putting that together. So we've Absolutely. talked Dodgers, we've talked family business, we've talked your background. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Uh, let me just finish, Dan, by asking you what I ask all my guests. Dan Vandervliet, what's in your heart? <laughs> Curiosity. Hmm. Um, you know, just I, I love learning and exploring um, and, uh, you know, just getting out of the ordinary. Um, and, and that can be a, a walk in the woods. That can be, um, you know, learning something new. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of being home right now is I'm exploring building a, a log cabin in my backyard. Wow. As a, <laughs> as, a, as a possible work from home office and, uh, and an extra bedroom for when the kids return. Um, so, you know, just sometimes when you kick off in that process of like, oh, I could never, I could never do that. And then like you start looking and reading and you're like, well, why can't I do that? Hmm. It's not really that hard and many people have done it. So, uh, and not all of that always comes to fruition, but sometimes, you know, just poking around and, and learning, uh, and asking people, you know, and this is, I think where it, you know, uh, people love to be seen as, as the expert. So if I can reach out and say, Hey, I know you know a lot about, um, you know, foraging for wild mushrooms, or right? I know you know a lot about um, hosting a podcast. Um, people love to sort of, you know, be able to share their knowledge with you. Um, and, and I think that often only comes by just trying to remain to be curious, as well as, you know, just being curious about, um, you know, the world around us and why things happen, uh, both good and bad, um, and not assuming you understand what's in somebody else's heart. 